We know the difficulties facing health and social care providers around the country when it comes to workforce and rotors, which is why we're proud to have Series 4 of our podcast sponsored by Florence. Florence connects care professionals with shifts across the healthcare sector. Their app lets you fill shifts instantly at great rates, so you can focus on providing outstanding care. All the links to Florence and their socials are going to be in each episode description of this podcast series, so why not go and check them out? Hello and welcome to The Caring View, the online health and social care platform available for all people in social care, elevating, educating and celebrating all things social care completely free of charge. Before we get started, go and check out our YouTube channel. You can subscribe for our weekly chat show, which goes live at uh, half seven every single Tuesday, give or take. Um, Or go to www.thecaringview.co.uk for all of our free resources and new one added every single Friday. You can also listen to our podcast and watch our show directly from there. And this is series four of the Caring View podcast exclusive to Spotify and all other major podcasting sites. And in it, we are looking at the the various member organizations that exist within social care, um, all designed to unite, network, and um, educate, grow the learning and the, the knowledge skill sets within social care. Uh, I'm joined by Mark Topps, my co-host. Hello, Mark. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Yourself? Yes, not too bad. Thank you very much. Fantastic. And uh, for episode three, we are joined by Vic Rayner, um, OBE, and uh, I I want to say chair of NCF Vic, but I've probably got your position wrong there. So please correct me, put me to shame and give yourself the fantastic introduction you deserve. Thanks uh, ever so much, Adam, and lovely to be with here with you and Mark again. Uh, so, uh, my, so I'm the chief exec of uh, National Care Forum. So uh, and shall I tell you a little bit about what they do? Yes, please, honestly, give us a good yeah. sort of intro um, to get us started. So uh, the National Care Forum was formed about 30 years ago uh, and focuses only on the not-for-profit part of the uh, adult social care sector. So we have a really uh, fantastic set of members who um, operate all sorts of different types and shapes of not-for-profit organisations, so that will include registered charities, um, housing associations, uh, non-shareholding kicks, uh, community interest companies, uh, LATCOs, which is local authority trading companies, uh, and other forms of not-for-profit organisations. So um, we have a great uh, set of members from across the country, and some who operate in Scotland and Wales as well. Uh, And generally, they are organisations who don't just offer care uh, or one type of care. So they're community-based organisations, often geographically based in a locality, uh, you know, might be a county or a a local authority area, and they will offer a mix of some housing services, uh, some residential care, some uh, home care. Um, Often they'll work with both working age adults and older people, and they might offer day services, uh, and often they'll they'll run a lot of non-registered services too. So they might be offering advice and advocacy services. So they're they're the sort of organisation that, that have often been right at the beating heart 
of communities um and uh, it's, it's a fantastic organization uh, and a fantastic opportunity to work with them thank you very much for that background um and i'm really looking forward to learning more about the offerings of the ncf later in this episode firstly and you just very briefly touched on it about you know working there um just for our listeners um to find out more about you um behind the organization can you tell us a bit about you, what your career point has been up in this, up to this point and what made you want to work for the NCF? So, uh, I mean, I, I have, I'm a bit of a sort of stick of rock, I guess. And if you cut me in half, I would have not-for-profit and uh, voluntary sector and charitable work sort of cut through me in a way. And so I've always worked in some uh, form of community-based uh, um, charitable organization uh, and largely for most of my career that has been in the supported housing or care sector. Uh, I've also worked in advice and advocacy, uh, uh, women's uh, women's services uh, and, I, and I'm involved in a, uh, a lot of different charitable boards and organizations uh, as well. So I, I mean I just I feel that um, the way in which these organizations the people who get involved in them the governance the voluntary activity that's that's at the heart of many of these organizations i just feel is a is a fantastic way for people to kind of express support and um uh and enable their communities to thrive and i personally get a huge amount of um value and uh, interest and um I, I suppose uh, drive, and you know, I'm in I'm in awe of a lot of the people I come across who work in in these organisations. So it's it's a personally it's very fulfilling for me to work in this sector generally, uh, and in to work in the not for profit part of it specifically. So I mean, and very admirable as well. NCF's been around well, formally been around I think since 2003. Is it? Um, yes. How long have you been there, um, uh, CEO? So, uh, well, it was around ten years before the sort of formal structure was there. But yeah, I've been the CEO for nearly seven years, which is a wow. bit of a surprise, really, when I say that number uh, to myself. But yes, so I've been there about seven years. So, for anyone listening who's um, sat there going to, um, in in a previous episode, I spoke about a, a colleague friend of mine who's gone from a receptionist to care worker to wanting to be a nurse to actually understanding where he wants to specify in nursing before even getting into university. He's got that pathway sort of um, uh, laid out. How would you find? How what was your experience from going from your previous role to uh, you know chief executive, one of the the, the largest member organisations in the country? Uh, so, well, my direct path was uh, from being the CEO of another membership organisation. <laughs> so kind of a, um, it, but prior to that, uh, I so I used to run an organisation called Citra, which was was the membership organisation for the supported housing sector. So interestingly for me, lots of the people I work with now are uh, involved in organisations <laughs> that, uh, that that deliver supported housing as well. And I, I, you know, and I think, I mean, I think this is a really interesting and important sort of legacy point, isn't it? That often um, 
the way that we try and sort of work with government and all sorts of people uh, who really don't know necessarily huge amounts of the history of all of this is that, you know, the, the differentiations between what's supported housing, what's regulated care, you know, these are political and policy decisions. Actually, ultimately, it's all about what people want, what people need uh, in order to enable them to have the most effective and independent lives that they can lead. And I, and I think that's the bit that's really driving and exciting. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a kind of story in that sort of sense of, of, of traveling from uh, the front line to this. And I think, yeah, but I, my, my experience has been in kind of working quality, working in education and training in membership bodies um, and, uh, and, and then moving up into a more sort of policy orientated work um, over the last sort of 15 plus years. So. You won't find me arguing that the uh, government sort of have a knowledge gap at times and rely on people like yourself well, and the sector to help support them with their decisions. I mean, I think it's a really important point. And I think for people who are thinking about working in care and, and, and are thinking that, you know, all of this, you know, there's loads of rules and regulations and all, you know, these are these are absolutely choices that have been made by politicians and, and we equally uh, have got some, you know, we've got an important role and that's what membership bodies, I think, absolutely need to do is we need to be saying when these policies, when these regulations work to support and safeguard and improve the lives of people and when they work it completely counter to them yeah. uh, and to remind people of that and to take the fantastic best practice from organisations uh, you know, from across the country, and indeed, I think particularly from across the world at this moment, and and be saying to uh, decision makers, whether it's local government, whether it's regulator, or whether it's central government, you know, the, there is a better way to do it, and here it is, and and we could show you that it works in practice, and we can show you that the outcomes are better for people, and we could show you that this is what people want, and that's what you've got to do. Yeah, hundred percent agree. So we know that you're you're there for the not for profits. Um, and, and we know that's really what your your niche is. But what are the benefits for your members? So for, for these organisations who are not for profit, who might not be a member of the NCF yet, and if you're not, why not? Um, you know, what sort of benefits do they get as being a member? So um, there are lots of lots and lots of different benefits uh, that we would have. I, I think the thing that people most talk about is um, connection and uh, connecting and learning and supporting and empowering uh, and working with each other. So we, we, f we focus a lot of our attention around that. And we have um, a whole host of different communities of practice where we bring together um, people of similar roles, similar interests um, uh, and similar specialisms and work with them to develop their practice, uh, learn from each other and to support each other. So we have those communities of practice around marketing, around hu human resources, around um, practice and quality specifically, uh, around finance, uh, around technology, uh, uh, learning disability services, uh, housing with care services. Um, and then within them, we have some specialist networks. So we have networks around dementia uh, and we have network a network around faith and spirituality because lots of our member organizations come from a faith-based uh, starting point and then probably uniquely to perhaps to some of the other membership organizations we have one specifically around governance 
Uh, so a community of practice there to bring together trustees, uh, non-executive directors, boards of uh, directors who are um, working within uh, charitable or housing association organisations or others and want to come and talk about their kind of governance responsibilities. So, and those communities of practice work in a whole host of different ways. So this, you know, this this kind of classic kind of forum meetings, bringing people together. Um, there's very specific tailored information and advice, there's specialist webinars, there's uh, uh, specific newsletters, uh, and there's a, there's a kind of internal forum where they can share and support each other with different resources and things. So, so that's one sort of side of it, communities of practice. It's a big part of it, um, and, it's, and it's really valued. Uh, we also get members together all the time whenever we can. So uh, we run um, fortnightly meetings. Uh, they were weekly up until very recently, but fortnightly meetings where we have policy specialists there uh, bringing to members' attention some of the latest information, uh, asking their opinion, consulting them, uh, getting their information about what's happening on the ground, and that's hugely valuable for us to be then able to go advocate and lobby on their behalf. Uh, we have benchmarking exercises. We work with a company called Agenda who do a pay terms and conditions survey that's free as part of their membership as well as a personnel report that's there. Uh, we have a whole host of suppliers who work with us as partners who uh, offer um, you know, advantageous uh, support um, for different members, and that covers legal and financial and insurance and all sorts of different types of things. And then we try to uh, enable them to get involved in lots of fantastic opportunities. So we work with lots of different universities. We're involved in a range of different research projects and we get their voices into those. Um, we have opportunities for them to, kind of, to come and uh, talk and showcase their work with government and others. Uh, other specialists, um, and uh, we also uh, connect them to care services in in other countries as well. And we, I specifically sit on something called the Global Aging Network, uh, and um, we're just about to uh, put on an international conference in Glasgow, bringing um, some of the most forward-thinking approaches around care from across the globe um, to the UK. So lots going on. You sound very busy and doing some amazing things. Um, and having spoken to some of the other member organisations, we know that some have diversified to online, um, some are trying to do a mix of in-person and virtual offerings. Um, and you just spoke about one of the biggest benefits is connecting people. Um, and you touched on some of the ways that you do this with the newsletters and the forums and the online events. Have you found that there's a strategy that works best for providers or is it a mix of all of them what's your take on it well i mean you know it's a bit like you know you wouldn't you you, you can't uh it's, it's different things are going to suit different people aren't they and i i suppose the success is about having a, a range of different options clearly in the last couple of years online became the 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 mode of choice what we've discovered uh you know it's not unique to us, but, you know, people do want to get back together. So we just, um, we like to work in partnership. We really like working in partnership wherever possible. Uh, and and whilst, Adam, you said, you know, what's your kind of niche is not for profit. I, I mean, I hope that our 
what we deliver is broader than just to our own membership cohort. In fact, we're trying all the time to kind of change the dial around um, care delivery full stop. Um, so this year uh, and and last year, in fact, we've run our managers conference in partnership with Skills for Care and this time with ARC England as well. So we, we're trying to work, um, and that was a face-to-face conference. And, you know, fascinatingly, it kind of sold out within about two weeks um, because people wanted to be back together again. And you know uh, how fabulous it's been with a, a big group of managers is. It's, it's a, just a great experience. I've never been hugged so much in my life. <laughs> and it's just kind of, you know, just that opportunity to sort of be with each other, share learn uh recognize that you're not alone i mean these are really important face-to-face things so we are building back up our 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 kind of offering of things where people can be in the same space and clearly the glasgow conference um in september will be a big part of that uh that we hope people will have a chance to you know we hope firstly it'll be you know people from all different types of um services is focusing on older people so everybody but lots of different types of organizations supporting older people will be there but also it'll be a chance to make connections and um networks with uh organizations um from scotland uh and the rest of the uk and um other parts of the world i think it's 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 great to hear that getting back into persons working and there was I think a, a real fear during the pandemic that that was it that you know this was the end um and i you know i suppose it comes with caveats doesn't it because whereas during the pandemic and digital we could all meet from all around the country without that travel expense that does come creeping back in but nothing beats being to you know seeing people face to face and in person um, but i think I, you're right i mean i think it really is it is a mix though because i think you're absolutely right about the kind of access side of things and what um I'm, you know, involved in lots of lots of different types of groups, so, and uh, I work quite a lot. Um, I'm the co-chair of the uh, Adult Social Care APPG Working Group, so the all-party parliamentary group. And one of the things that we've um, done in in the last year is to really develop a kind of lived experience group as part of that. And actually, I think uh, you know, an an online opportunities mean that, that that many more people can be in the room uh than than could be um uh that, than we traditionally sort of managed to bring together so i i think it is keeping all of those options open um but yes uh and i i suppose people now meet want to meet with a purpose yes and i guess we've all got a bit kind of precious about our our time and 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 you know importantly an understanding of the impact travel has on the environment and everything else um so you know we want to meet to learn something as well but that that is bigger than just talking yeah and that goes virtually as well as you know whereas originally everyone was oh great let's film a diary of virtual stuff because it's new and exciting and it's fun yeah Everyone's got more of a focus on, right, if I'm coming to this, what's the impact for me? How am I going to be able to go and change the lives of the people I'm supporting and who are what yeah. my team? There has yeah. to be that takeaway. 
So you've got all these these networks and you've got these ways that you're connecting with your members and they're giving you this feedback. How do you use this as a voice in, in government, as a voice? Like you just mentioned, you know, the fact that you're you're part of the APPG. So how, how are you using this to sort of change minds, change thinking? So I think there's some really uh, there's some really important ways of doing that. I mean, one of them is an is an early warning system. So I think that you know, with the breadth of membership that we've got, um, it it is and the closeness that we are to them, it is a really there's a really important what um, lesson about kind of when when we're hearing about things that are happening on the ground being able to have the networks and the connections in to to raise those as a as a very early warning flag and we do that uh and i think because we are we've got a good strong relationship with members um you know we're able to with our support connect them up with the people who need to to hear what's happening and that might be about uh, you know, clearly recent examples, uh, other than all the work around COVID, would have been in relation to, you know, energy prices, for example, cost of living prices, you know, all of those kind of things, being able to say, you want to know about it, here's a here's a person who um, can tell you what it's really like on the ground um, and, uh, and and help you to understand you know what the what the possible things are that government or or the regulator might need to do in relation to that. So that's one sort of side of it. The other is building an evidence bank. So, um, you know, the government has uh, understood the power of data with it, uh, social care, and and clearly that is a really important um, lesson that we hope has been learned um, from COVID. That you know it was absolutely hopeless to have the main data set about social care to be a retrospective data set that was cap- captured once a year or, uh, you know, so actually having some real live data is really important. Um, but, uh, you know, we can also make sure that we qualify, you know, give some qualitative analysis to that through engagement with members. So uh, definitely ut- utilising things like surveys and roundtables and those kind of things where we can bring together those voices. I think the other ways in which we have done uh, a lot of work around raising members' voices has been through the press, the media, um, using uh, trade-based press, um, but also uh, offering um, you know good opportunities to um, the wider broadcast media to understand what's happening in care, why they should be worried about it, or. Uh, why they should be celebrating it or whatever it might be uh, and using opportunities to do that. And most recently we did some work, you know, we recognise that we have a, a whole set of kind of possible partners who maybe don't understand enough about care, who sit in the sort of health service. Uh, so we did a really exciting piece of work with the health service journal where we sort of did a takeover for a couple of weeks and provided loads of different articles that were geared towards health leaders to help them understand what's going on. And then you mentioned the APPG, so clearly we do lots of work, parliamentarian work and uh, raising kind of issues and um, and important information about care through that way and, and other key stakeholders in ICSs and other places. I think it's great that you're utilising the voice from providers to shape government and decision-making and utilising that data that you've got. Um, we all know that changes are needed and having NCF kind of feed into that is, is great. Um, 
One thing we wanted to touch on was around membership. Um, and you, you sparked a question in my mind when you touched on press releases. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced in building and growing your membership? Is there a target that you have each year or is it that actually you'd rather retain the ones that you've got? And how do you find that the press releases impact member growth? Well, uh, so, I mean, member growth is really important to us. Um, I mean, I think, you know, from my point of view, uh, I am uh, also looking um, particularly at what the proportion of not-for-profit provision is in the sector as a whole. And and I'm absolutely, um, as you probably gathered, uh, believe that not-for-profit care is is one of the, you know, is, is a really important part of community uh, provision. Uh, so I want to grow that as well. I think in the context of press releases um, and that kind of, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I often observe in the kind of, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about, um, you know, what their opinion of care was from an external perspective. And, and their opinion was, was really interesting because it was very positive. It was like, you know, care is a really important job to be done and it's a really powerful and you know valuable thing for people to do and uh, it's an important part of the infrastructure and I was, I was reflecting that you know sometimes maybe we you know we we internally focus on a lot of the negative issues uh around care um maybe more so than the wider press and community do uh, so I, I don't know how much a press, I mean, I'm not sure I've got the kind of sophisticated impact uh, software that will tell me that a press release brings in new members. But what, what we do hear from members is that they really value having their voices raised. Uh, and I hope that people who um, see things that I might write in the press, whether they're not for profit or otherwise, will, will recognise that, that it's told from a place of truth. Uh, and generally a, a sort of truth to power type of uh, message, which is is talking about the reality of um, working in care or delivering care or, or uh, you know, where where we're working in partnership with somebody else uh, like TLAP or, or other organisations, that it's, it's true to the experience of people receiving care and support. Again, it's uh, the whole co-production, the whole cross-party working, the whole cross-organisational working. It's, it's being able to recognise where strengths are elsewhere and being able to utilise it to have a unified voice, isn't it? One question that came up in um, one of our previous episodes with, with Nadra was, uh, and Nadra Ahmed um, from the, the National Care Association was around social care being fragmented, which we all know and we are all used to using that term when we come to social care as fragmented. And Nadra was um, saying that she she disagrees slightly that it's fragmented because we are all on the same page. And once we're all in the same room, actually that conversation happens and we all agree with each other. It doesn't excuse the, well, it doesn't take away the fact that we aren't all together and we aren't all talking to each other. So what, in your opinion, is the best way for us to encourage or really to boost the engagement of the sector as a whole. So outside of your membership, like you're saying, you hope your reach is reaching out there. What's yeah. the best way that we boost that engagement and we get people to go, actually, differences aside, we all need to work together now to have this unified pound for pound, biggest employer in the country is social care, bigger than the NHS. So it really is that important. Words of wisdom, Vic. Well, 
I mean, I think unfortunately, you look at most other sort of sectors and nobody's speaking with one voice, which is, you know, which is challenging, isn't it? If you look at the health sector, I think you'd find that they were speaking with multiple uh, different voices, depending on whether you were talking about hospitals or community services or, or whatever. I suppose the yes, I suppose the, the 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 words of wisdom, I guess, are about, uh, you know, what ultimately this, you know, it's it. What we so fragmentation is an interesting kind of concept, isn't it? So if you listen to um, the voices, you know, organisations like uh, Community Catalyst, um, Social Care Future, you know, lots of organisations which, which have got kind of people using care and support as the kind of heart of that messaging, it, it's really clear that. Uh, yeah, much of the, the the difficulty of trying to engage with social care um, and health, you know, is that it, it is the person gets completely lost in all of that. So whether it's about the training that's offered, or whether it's about uh, you know the, the the disconnect between acute services and community services, whatever, there is you, the person is really kind of lost in that. So I think, I mean, I guess the united, the uniting voice is um, around saying, you know, we're making sure that the person really is at the heart of the decision making. I think the bit that we we can all unite around. Uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, not in the, not, I don't try to be too stuck in the sort of doom monger end of things, but we have got a massive, massive crisis coming down the line in terms of workforce particularly and I think this is why I'm so interested in the kind of global side of things is that you know when I listen to politicians and others they talk about solutions in the context of if we sort of solve it here if we add a bit of money there and we do this here it'll it'll change the dial without recognizing that you know every other country in the world is also struggling with health and care workforce challenges so I think the bit that we have to unite around is um, about uh, is about uh, an agenda that makes social care the best place to work, uh, and that will be you know that is against a dwindling working population who we will be having to compete more and more with. So we have to make it the best place to work in, and in order to do that, or the, you know, we have to deliver care that is, that is, the care that people want. You know, you can't you, you can't be fulfilled in your work if you are delivering something that isn't the thing that is 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 providing the most benefit to an individual. So I, I think understanding what the future looks like and, and what we need to collectively do to um, make it, you know, to, to mean that there will be a care sector there for when, every, when people need it, I think is the uniting feature. I think all the time we're being led down a path of, you know, quibbling over, you know, X or Y and the detail, um, we'll, we'll find difference. But we could find uh, unification, I think, over that message of understanding we're part of a global ecosystem yeah. that that 
you know, and, and we will lose uh, the race if all we do is talk about and think about uh, very short-term measures that will uh, address the the you know the winter next winter. We need to be silent for you know winter twenty forty uh, and what 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 we'll need at that point. And I don't think we're doing that. No, there is still a lot of knee-jerk sort of planning going on. And even, you know, with the, the people at the heart of care, we've had it nicely repackaged with a new bow on, ready for us to sort of enjoy. And it's not really... It still feels very sort of redundant in what we need. I suppose, just before I bring Mark in for another question, I suppose there's also something about the education of society as a whole and what social care really is. And it's not just the job. It's not just needing some support. It's everything. You know, everyone at some point has a connection to social care, no matter what. And it's about really trying to get people to understand that you need to care about it because you're going to need it. You really do need yeah. to Yeah, I mean, I don't you find, I mean, I just find it completely incredible that people don't, I mean, I, I don't know who, who these people out there are who have no, have no, know anybody who receives social care or don't understand what social care is. I mean, you know, God, we made it as complicated as we possibly can, but. You know, the, you don't need to understand how to remove somebody's kidney to know that it's possible to do it. Exactly. So, you know, what do, what is it that we need to tell people? Uh, you know, you need to know that you are, when you need it, it's there. I mean, that's the that's the kind of core of it, isn't it? Yeah. And I suppose that's where I, I think members are so important because they are, you know, that, Firstly, they've got, as you say, the biggest workforce. You know that all of those people are ambassadors uh, for explaining what care is about. There are millions of people receiving it uh, who could be talking about what it's a, what what great care uh, means to them. You know, so there's a whole movement of people. But I mean, my, I said you asked me earlier how long I've worked at NCF. I mean, I I've worked. As I say, seven years. I think probably in my first week of NCF, I went to some kind of, you know, cross-stakeholder meeting about how do we get people to understand social care. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it, it, so, but but my point, I do think we have had a shift around that. And um, just before we started, we talked about that kind of that idea that now, if you look at um, manifestos. Uh, and obviously, we have got a reform package. You know, it's become it's become recognised. I think that politically, you can't ignore it, and and that yeah. was the situation ten, fifteen years ago. Yeah, always reminds me of when um, we used to have our sort of uh, care roadshows for our our care home in our local area, and people would come in and we go, "Oh, you know, here's a leaf, here's some information." Oh, I'm not old enough for a care home yet. Yeah, and then. I'm not saying come in and live in my care home. It's just these are the services we've got available. You can come and work for us. You can tell people about us. You might have a relative that needs us. Um, we're part of your community and we want to be involved with you. It's not about dragging you off the streets into our care. It's that yeah. the lack of understanding. Oh, Mark, over to you. No, this is all, all good conversation. And I, I think the awareness of social care is slowly changing. Sadly, not quick enough. Um, I think for me, I keep getting invited to these healthcare NHS events. And I do say to them, you know, I'm not interested in coming unless social care is on that agenda as well. And why isn't it? And I do think it gets people thinking about it. Some have changed the agenda and have included social care. And I'm like, I'm happy to, 
you know, either share that event or join you there. Um, some sadly haven't. There's a couple of big ones that have contacted me that have said the agenda is kind of set, but in 2024, actually, we're going to make sure that this is considered. So I do think it's it's small steps. Um, Vic, you mentioned short-term measures. Um, how do you think we overcome that and change it so that we've got, you know, people in government, um, people in local authorities thinking long-term? I mean, you spoke obviously about the winter pressures, it seems to just be something that they just rhetorically go on about. How do we get people to start thinking about, you know, what is the plan for the next, I mean, even three years would be great, five years, 10 years would be amazing. Well, we can do it, can't we, when we talk about industry. So, you know, we can have a, you know, 15, 20 year industrial strategy. Now, whether we stick to it or not, I guess it's another thing, but we can do that. I mean, I, I, I suppose I look at particularly some of the things that have been done uh, around climate change. And I, I think that, it, you know, we should be thinking of a sort of, um, you know, zero, 2050s, the year of zero ageism or whatever it might be. I mean, it's that it's that kind of thing. I mean, I, I was at a conference the other day and somebody was saying, you know, climate, climate, the climate crisis is a health crisis. I mean, the, you know, that is true. That's absolutely true. And it's a care crisis as well and I, so i think there are things that we can do around linking uh the long-term need for care um to other targets other issues i mean all, all people seem to understand it when you talk about housing people seem to understand that there is a need you know if you're going to have a, a housing strategy then you you can't base that on really short-term uh, in initiatives or pilots or whatever it might be, you because you're asking people to invest in, a, in what people understand as a long-term uh, approach. But what they seem to forget when they come to care, because they think of it, I think, uh, in, in a very much in a revenue mindset, is that they seem to think that short-term approaches are are possible so i think we have to start kind of couching it in a much more um cross-party strategic you know long-term strategy uh approach um some great work done by people like skills for care and others about the kind of economic return in relation to care that's really important and and you know it's we should be seeing local LEPs, you know, the local economic partnerships picking up that sort of idea. You know, you mentioned it's the biggest employer in the country. In many localities, if you aggregated the care sector together, it'd be the biggest employer. But we don't, we we probably need to do more things to work together to, to maximise on that. So if you had every care provider, you know, if you had the local care association basically said, right, I've got every care provider uh, with me on this, uh, you know, we're going to, um, we're only going to buy from, you know, X uh, as a as a conglomerate or whatever. You know, you you begin to see some sort of muscle develop, and I, and I think that's the sort of um, not advocating uh, monopsony, uh, monopoly purchasing or anything like that, but you know, uh, but actually recognizing that t- together we've got some power around that. Uh, then I think. I think we could be talking about longer term uh, strategy uh, approaches 
I think the problem is you've got this terrible combination of political cycles of national government and then political cycles of local government, often which don't cross over with each other. So you've got, you know, you might have a sort of two-year hiatus when people can lay down some plans for social care at a locality level, which which that they won't be changed by a change in national government or national government can lay them down and they won't be changed by... Um, so it's really, really hard. It's really hard. But I think we've, we've got to take it away from um, being... I mean, it's 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 a counter move. It won't be liked by people like ICSs and 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 others. But I think you've got to take it almost away from uh, uh, it being about local localism to to being about something that you know actually is of national importance. And and if we don't get it right, will be the cause of national emergency. Yeah, and I suppose uh, just quickly before I bring Mark in for his final question, I just want to touch upon learning from other sectors. And my mind was thinking when you were talking then about you know, the, the sort of revolving door of government and, you know, the constant changes and there's no sort of stability. We also have to sort of battle against the inability to strike in social care. Now, whether you are a striker or not, uh, they you know, is, is by the by, but social care is currently going through some of the biggest challenges we've ever faced. And yet, actually, a lot of the effort has to go to the organisations and the, the public sectors. And, I mean, cracky, our regulators striking. You know, if we can have the CQC, uh, we've got doctors, we've got NHS, we've got the railways, we've got posties, you know, all of these people being able to strike, the government is going to put its focus there because they want to be able to mediate that and sort of temper it down. So we've got that to combat as well. But is there anything we can learn from other sectors? So you've spoken about going overseas um, and, and learning from, from care in other countries. But is there anything we can learn from organisations that aren't care to bring into our sector? Well, yeah, huge amounts. I mean, I think you know, we uh, we we there are some sectors that we might look at to see uh, greater similarities. I mean, obviously, people have talked about uh, you know regulatory approaches in education and 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 thinking about that in the context of care and 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 responses around that. So you know, those are things that people are already thinking about and and looking at. I I suppose that um, you know the big there's a big push that I've been very interested in while I've been working in this sector, which is around technology. And I think that there are there is masses to learn uh, and um, appreciate in the context of technology. And, and many sectors who are offering, you know, frontline services have, have been much more transformed by technology uh, than we have uh, in care yet. Um, and I think, you know, we definitely should be looking uh, to understand what what's happened in those sectors, uh, and and to understand, you know, to own what that change might look like in care, um, and I, you know, it's it's probably people might not like the the correlation, but if you thought about something like uh, retail, uh, which was quite a labour intensive, labour heavy uh, sector, um, or agriculture, uh, which has been very labour intensive. Um, and then saw how technology had transformed that. Uh, some of those changes will be warmly welcomed. Some of those have made um, the operating within those sectors extraordinarily difficult. Uh, so I think we have to look at how they have taken those journeys 
uh, and learn from them. I mean, we had a fantastic speaker recently who came and talked to us um, from the logistics sector. Uh, and, and what they were talking about was how they retain staff and how they uh, ensure that uh, staff feel valued. Um, and, you know, that was all, a lot of that was about uh, how they manage um, uh, staff expenses, staff payments, how they're flexible in terms of their kind of workforce, work uh, workplace approaches. So they were talking about things like um, if people incur expenses in order to come in for additional shifts, for example, they respond to a plea for that, then they get paid that day. All they have to do is just take a photo of their bus ticket or whatever it is, and they get they get the money back into their account on that day. And certainly uh, we're talking with lots of care providers across lots of different sectors. Many are still very much uh, stuck in a, in a mode of... Um, HR that is, you know, you wait until the end of the month and then you get it paid retrospectively at the at, at that period. You know, we're not we're not taking we're not taking some of those little pockets of learning uh, and applying them. Um, but technology, I, I I think is really uh, will really transform what we can do. And I was listening to the stuff yesterday that came out just in, in the news uh, the other day about robotic hands and. Uh, and uh, they were talking about robotic hands now being developed with, uh, with skin touch to them so that they could be soft enough to pick strawberries. And, I, and I've certainly seen robots um, in uh, in parts of Asia, which are now kind of sophisticated enough to brush people's hair um, and carry out other personal kind of care functions. So what, you know, what do we think about any of that? What are we going to do about any of that? How, how prepared are people for that future? Um, and, and what can we learn from, you know, the agriculture sector in in that uh, in that sort of instance about how they might replace uh, or or transform their delivery of services with um, a, a much greater focus on tech in the future? Oh, I definitely agree that we need to learn from other sectors and what they're doing and yeah great examples there of what you've you've just spoken about and actually we don't we don't do that i think as as a sector i think technology is much quicker than oh yeah. God. well i just think and i just think we don't know about it in a way you know we so so the people who i was reading something the other day about uh um machines that can uh that that now uh robot robots that are trimming leaks for example um uh, and uh, checking out sizing of potatoes and things like that. <laughs> uh, you know, those aren't necessarily things we might want to think about in the context of personal care, but how much are we thinking about those in the context of, you know, food preparation or, or you know, other... other si- uh, it's not all about how we might um, bring technology into personal care, but there might be other elements. You know, we had a member who was busy trialling driverless cars a while ago in, in the context of kind of extra care settings so you know are we thinking about that kind of you know how might that transform home care uh are we you know we were talking a little bit earlier about robots you know telepresence robots i mean are they are they the sort of thing that will enable much greater um opportunity for people to uh you know home care services to offer access to allied health professionals through through telepresence robots who might go with a home care worker uh, into a setting and offer a combined health and care service. So there's lots of, I think there's loads and loads of different exciting opportunities, but we've got to, 
we've got to give ourselves a space and time and and begin to own what some of that will be otherwise we'll find you know commissioners or regulators or government or whoever who will say this is how you have to deliver care and it won't be the care that people want and it won't be the care that and it won't uh, play to the strengths and skills of the workforce which is obviously key to make sure we um, make sure we get people who deliver care to to play to their strengths and do the things that uh, they're most effective at. I know, 100%. And you speak about driverless cars. I saw one on the um, the TV this morning by Ford, funny enough. And I think you, you mentioned personal care. And I think that's the, the thing, isn't it? You mentioned technology and digital and robots and people instantly think, oh, actually, we're going to remove the person. Actually, I don't want to be cared for by, or people wouldn't want to be cared for by a robot. But it's things like AI. And, you know, Adam will tell you that I'm a big fan of AI, but how we could use that to, you know, make sure that our care plans are really detailed and we've yeah. got it on one of our internal um, systems. And, you know, you can write a message and then you can go on the AI and it can choose whether it's written more professionally, whether it's written more casually, depending on, on the mood and actually how we integrate that within our kind of workforces day to day. Yeah, well, like, exactly. Well, you just think, I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, we we bring together members around marketing all the time. Or, you know, marketing is an area where AI is going to completely transform, um, you know, both the recruitment sort of marketing messages and and the messages out to people. The the very people that Adam, you know, was was handing out a leaflet who said, "I know, you know, I'm not old enough for this. I'm not old enough." You know, what? How do you message to those people? Well, AI will tell you. You know, it'll it'll give you a it'll give you a different way to think about that stuff. And that, you know, that is. So maybe that maybe AI has the. I, I was again. I was at this conference the other day, and a guy, a guy was on the panel, and he said, "I, you know, I could see the questions I was going to be asked, so I asked ChatGPT, GPT to answer them for me." And he read out the answers from ChatGPT, and they were exactly what you or I or or, or Adam would have said. You know, they were. It was one of the key challenges facing the care sector, and it reeled it off. So, I think there's a load of opportunity there, not just to, you know. Not just to sort of say, as you say, the robots are coming. What are we going to do? But but kind of you know, when I went I went to the states in October and, and saw loads of loads lots of robotic use in uh, housing with care settings where they were being used very much in the kind of hospitality side of it, which was really difficult to recruit to in the states. If you think about the states without that minimum wage, very tip reliant. Well, you can't you know you can't pay people's wages. Uh, based on tips in a extra care setting because it's the same people living there in the restaurant every day. They're not going to tip all the time. So you've got to find another way to do it. And the, the way to do it was to bring a robot in to do the busing and to take the, the stuff in and out and keep the front house staff there talking with the people and, and connecting with them. I think, honestly, it's, it is amazing. I mean, you know, technology does have its place. And I always remember this episode I watched, of, I can't even remember what it was, probably even just BBC News or... Um, uh, tomorrow's world. I don't think tomorrow's world exists anymore, does it? It's uh, all about Jake's show that. But it was about um, uh, someone in a foreign country who uh, was completely bedridden, couldn't move any muscle in his body. He had, you know, communicated through straw and using air blows, but actually worked as a waiter in a restaurant, which was incredible. And use this robot is, and it was just absolutely mind blowing. And if we can do stuff like that, cause that's that's social care. That's providing yeah. someone with the ability to to yeah. do and achieve whatever they can they can do. I think it's and who, and who wouldn't be excited about working in that sector? Oh, with that person, 
you, you just couldn't imagine that you couldn't be excited about that. And I think that's the bit, isn't it? You know, that's the bit that we, that's the kind of, you know, that's what gets embedded in the, in the long-term strategy. Then there's hope for us all. Well, I, exactly. And I think that was the perfect close. Who wouldn't want to work in social care with it being this exciting? Uh, honestly, Vic, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak and see you again. Um, and as always, you're, you're more than welcome at the Caring View at any point. We are, are beholden to your knowledge and your and your learnings. Um, and I just want to say a huge thank you to Mark uh, for, for being a fabulous co-host. Mark, anything before we disappear? Just very quickly, um, I think we we did divert from the NCF into how we could conquer social care, but I, I've loved the conversation. Um, it's been a great, great interview. I think while it's on the tip of my tongue, while I'm thinking about it, if there's anything we can do here at the Caring View alongside you guys at the NCF to win that battle, please do do let us know, Vic, offline. But yeah, a great podcast episode. Thank you very much, Vic, for joining us. Thank you. And as you said at the beginning, if anybody's listening who's part of the not-for-profit sector who's not a member, then do get in touch. We would be delighted to have you join. But we and and also to reiterate, we love working in partnership with all sorts of different people. Uh, together, we can deliver so much more. Absolutely fantastic. This has been the Caring View episode three of series four of our podcast. Like I say, find us on www.thecaringview.co.uk for all of our free resources. You can listen to our podcast and our YouTube show there. Um, alternatively, go and find us on Spotify and YouTube. Hit those subscribe buttons and you will never miss out on an episode. If you are on LinkedIn, go and follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter, which will go out monthly and it will be free, uh, full again of free information and resources and knowledge for you to help um, you in your own social care journeys. Obviously, this is elevating, educating, and celebrating all things social care, not just dedicated to the workforce, but people who are living and 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 you know dying and existing and everybody we've just discussed that social care is for everybody and the caring view is similar for everybody so until then in our next episode we will bid you adieu take care stay safe and we will see you soon we know the difficulties facing health and social care providers around the country when it comes to workforce and rotors which is why we're proud to have series four of our podcast sponsored by florence Florence connects care professionals with shifts across the healthcare sector. Their app lets you fill shifts instantly at great rates, so you can focus on providing outstanding care. All the links to Florence and their socials are going to be in each episode description of this podcast series, so why not go and check them out?